Hey, this is Jordan Sutton, pastor at Clear Path Church. Thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. We appreciate you listening. A little about our community. We love to come together. We love to come to the Lord's table together. Uh, We're a community trying to be led by the Spirit, just walking through Scripture together, walking through life together. If this message is an encouragement to you, bring some hope to your life at the end of the sermon. There'll be a little bit of information about how you can get in touch with us. Stay tuned, and thanks for joining. Toby has a way of running, rubbing people. Um, he's got a challenge and heart in him, um, which I hope he brings a little bit to us this morning. But there's just not, a, man, there's hardly a person I know that has a deeper conviction to pursue what he thinks is right and, and, and true and, and God ultimately. And I, I am like ready and excited to receive from you. Um, you've been a great friend, you've been a great follower of God. And in this last year, I just have noticed the pursuit just Let's welcome him as he shares. And happy Father's Day. (laughs) Good, now I don't have to say it. (laughs) Happy Father's Day to everyone. Jordan, thank you. Um, Let's open in prayer. God, I just thank you for your Holy Spirit that rests on all of us the spirit that you put inside of me, and I just ask this morning um, that I come to do this, and this isn't something that I do often, that um, you would calm my nerves enough for me to not be the thing that's seen today. Um, I know that my personality will come through and that you've created me the way that you have for a reason, but um, I just ask that as much as possible that I would decrease and that you would increase so that uh, the word that you've given me for this body this morning would be appropriately shared. I just pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in everybody, God, that as I speak, that we would be able to apprehend these things and to know the hope to which you've called us. Amen. Amen. All right, well, it's good to be in front of all of you. As you all know, I'm very long-winded, so better buckle up. Um, and I have a lot of material, so if I'm looking at my notes too much, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to blow through it, or I'll get sidetracked, and we will never leave, there'll be babies crying, it will not be good. So I decided that the first thing I should do was make sure that I get at least one strong amen from everybody in case the sermon is really bad and I don't get any throughout the sermon, so I just want to say praise God for air conditioning. Amen. Thank you. So I got one. Um, it's June in Texas, in case you haven't noticed, it is. It's terrible. 
Uh, it's great. It's it's like it's like you know we're getting our first hundred degree weather, which isn't supposed to hit till July, but global warming. Don't tell the Republicans. <laughs> global warming. I don't know what it is. Um, Anyway, but yeah, so there are good things about June, but I don't think that any Texan here, if anyone's from Texas, you wouldn't say that June is your favorite month. Um, like I said, it's really hot, like hotter than the surface of the earth borderline. All of the really annoying teenagers are out of school. They've emerged from being held in their jails all day, and now they're just out roaming free in the public, so anywhere you go, I don't recommend that. Just stay home. And, the worst thing though, I think we will all agree, or if you live anywhere near a lake like I do, June bugs. They're the number one worst thing about June, and they're aptly named. So I think to start off uh, Father's Day, I should share a delightful little anecdote with you about my father, and I'll probably get some of it wrong, um, because it's not my story. I don't know it that well, but my version's good. It might not be true, but it's good. So I'm going to take you back to... 1971, which is uh, gives us 15-year-old Kevin Sipes. Maybe it was 72. We'll give you a break. But don't do the math. Everyone be cool. 15-year-old Kevin Sipes. And of course, 15-year-old Kevin Sipes, the first thing he did when he turned 15 was go and get his motorcycle license. That's what you want your 15-year-old to do, right? As soon as they turn 15, go get their motorcycle license. I don't even know if you can do that anymore, but... Maybe. Um, anyway, so he had a motorcycle license. It's very on brand for my dad, if you know him, uh, at least back in the day. But also on brand, he had a job at age 15. And he had a job, apparently, according to the way he tells it, on Saturdays. So I don't know how many 15-year-olds with a motorcycle are spending their time working on Saturday. Uh, I believe he worked at a ranch. Is this the same ranch I've heard stories he like bailed hay at or something? Right? All right, so he bailed hay at a ranch as a 15-year-old for a job. So he's on his motorcycle, a uh, Honda 100cc motorcycle that he just bought. He's driving down, I don't know what kind of road it is. It's a dirt road in my mind, but maybe you can't be going that fast. So it's like a two-lane highway, we're going to call it. And he's going like 60. He might only be going 40, but for this story, he's going 60. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, just boom, he gets hit right in the eye. By what? A June bug. Doing 60. June bug, no big deal. Hits you in the face, you get away from me. June bug doing 60, big, big problem. So the question I haven't asked, and you'll have to answer, did you, it was on the way to work. Did you work that day? Of course. Again, very on brand, if you know my dad. He, he worked that day. And the story goes that he woke up on Sunday with his eye basically swollen shut and couldn't see out of that huge black eye. And then the end of the story actually is my favorite part, which is Monday morning on the way to school on his motorcycle, some lady is not paying attention, she hadn't had her coffee yet or whatever, and she pulls out, cuts him off, and my dad just rams his brand new motorcycle right into the side of her car, flies off the bike. So everyone's freaking out, they're coming over to try to figure out if they can help him. I don't know how it was, but in my mind he's like face down on the ground, someone rolls him over, and he has this huge black eye. <laughs> And they're like, oh my gosh, you poor thing. Like, are you okay? People are cussing this lady out. They're saying mean things to her for not paying attention. It's really bad. And the best part of the story is dad got a new motorcycle paid for by her insurance. And that was it. And I'm assuming you found a way to upgrade to like a 250cc or 200 or something. No, but I got the combination. Instead of just street, it was combination street trail. 
Oh, we got the street trail combination bike. I love it. So anyway, um, that has no importance to the sermon today. I've just wasted extra five minutes before you get to go home. So I'm sorry, but I think we can all agree that June bugs are the worst, especially my dad. He will agree that June bugs are the absolute worst. I don't know if you guys are with it, but I've always subscribed to the idea that those and like mosquitoes and I don't know, other annoying things, gnats, all those things are left over from the 10 plagues. I have no <laughs> theological backing to like actually back that up. But here's what I'll say. If you would like to challenge me on that, would you, when did they come about? Like we're Adam and Eve strutting around in the garden naked, just like swatting mosquitoes and stomping June bugs. I don't see it having happened that way. Seems very unlikely to me. Um, but anyway, so we have this thing in Texas where we have these annoying bugs, and I guess in the South, we've decided that we should name annoying bugs after months, months of the year, right? So we have June bugs for June, uh, and I get it because I looked it up and the scientific name is like Philophaga, and that's really hard to say, so I guess June bugs works. And then we have another one that's really exciting, which is Ephemeroptera. I thought Ephemeroptera sounds better. They say it's Ephemeroptera. And would anyone like to guess what an ephemeroptera is? Mayfly. It's a mayfly. You're all scholars. Well done. So I want to talk about mayflies for a minute, not June bugs. A mayfly is a really interesting, in its own right, creature. Um, the adult mayfly lifespan is about 24 hours. And we, I looked this up in your backyard. We had a debate about it. I found something that said 13 days. Scholars now agree since that conversation, I was right then, that it's like 24 hours adult lifespan, right? And if you're a female mayfly, it's way worse. You get about five minutes on average. That's your lifespan, okay? So this is the life cycle of the mayfly. They're born, you know, they're hatched as an egg, and then there's some like larva type period where they're something that's not a mayfly that's in the water for a longer period of time than they're in a mayfly. And then they sprout their wings they actually don't have mouths. Um, that's how much they, well, they don't, I don't know if they have mouths. They don't eat. They don't have mouths that allow them to eat. Maybe they have a mouth that they have to breathe. I think bugs breathe through their skin, like exoskeleton thing. But anyway, doesn't matter. Like I said, notes, gotta stay on track. They, they, don't, they, have, they are not going to be long, alive long enough to need to eat, okay? So basically, they sprout their wings and they run around and they try, or they fly around, and they try to reproduce as fast as they can and not get eaten by any one of numerous predators that are available that are trying to eat them. And then they try to lay their eggs down on the water and then they try to avoid predators for the next, what have we got left? Like 18 hours before they die of natural causes. <laughs> so like, I mean, how much of a, a hero is a, a mayfly if it survives that extra, you know, few minutes or, or whatever it is. But I, I was thinking about it and I realized that literally almost no one has any value for a mayfly. Like, if you don't believe me, let's think about, uh, how about PETA, for instance? People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. They've come for almost everything, right? I have not seen a PETA smear campaign about fly swatter manufacturers, like and how they're wrong and evil and dirty. No one, no one thinks that. Even PETA, if they won't touch it, then there's only one other group of people who possibly would touch it that might love children more than PETA, or might love animals more than PETA, and that's small children. They have, there are hamsters these days that have more specialized diets than I do. And you're, I know you're thinking that I don't have a very specialized diet, which is true, but 
people have like special cages. They, my nephews have a lizard, and I don't know if they use it, but for Christmas, one of my nephews, I bought him a leash for his lizard. Okay, so like we have kids with lizards on leashes. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, no one cares about mayflies because they're bugs and no one likes bugs. Mm -hmm. There are children. They're, they might be weird, a little, maybe they're not weird. They're just a little, they're not mainstream thinkers, maybe, you know. And they hone in on the idea that it's a good idea to keep a tarantula as a pet, potentially. Okay, so even God, as far as I can tell, doesn't care very much about mayflies. I don't think he does. In Matthew 10, whenever he's trying to tell us how important we are, he said that he knows when every sparrow falls to the ground. There's no mention of mayflies. Not a bit. So the mayfly is insignificant. My, my new friend Daniel that I met, we were talking about hunting a couple times. We've hung out and like guns and stuff, and I, I've never heard anyone like getting their bug assault gun and shooting down the mayfly and then coming to their parent, you know, and being like, I shot it and I looked in its eyes and I felt its soul and I can never kill again. It's not like a deer, you know. So we've established now, no one cares about mayflies, okay? So why, why does no one care about mayflies? Some people, when they start like breaking down whether it's important to kill certain animals or like whether their life matters, they break it down to like, are they sentient or not? Like how aware are they of what's going on? Maybe that's a, a decent argument. Um, but I think the number one thing is because their lifespan is just so short. Like how much potential can there really be for like life, love and loss in 24 hours? Like what, how much of a tragedy is it if you like kick the bucket a, a few hours early, you know? I mean, honestly, not to be like too big of a jump in topics, I mean, we need to change subject right here. It's a sermon, right? We're talking about mayflies, but we do the same thing with people, like with young children when they die, like it's really, really sad. And with elderly people, it's kind of like, all right, like it was your time, right? And it's not because like their actual tangible value of their life is less, it's like they had less potential for life and love. And so like with a younger person, we feel like we were robbed of something uh, more than we would have been with an elderly person and like they were robbed of something, of more life, you know. So back to mayflies, right? <laughs> there is one group of people in the entire world that I've found who cares about mayflies and they care about them a whole lot. Can any of you brilliant scholars who guessed that the ephemeroptera was the mayfly Tell me who the group of people is that cares about mayflies. Anybody? Pilgrim. What? I heard it, I think, somewhere. It's, it's fly fishermen. Fly fishermen love mayflies. Um, so I've never been fly fishing. Again, my new friend Daniel told me that he's been fly fishing. He has like a nine-foot fly fishing rod. I don't, I don't have one of those. Um, I've done other kinds of fishing, like I fished for fish for bass and trout and catfish and brim, bluegill, whatever. I mean, make the list. Um, and you know, lakes, creeks, rivers, ponds. But I feel like I've been robbed from the people that I know that like to fish of the two best kinds of fishing, which are deep sea fishing, I've never done, and fly fishing, I have never done. So I would like to, to hone in on fly fishing for a minute. Um, so we've established fly fishermen love mayflies. Why do they love mayflies? Pretty simple answer, because fishes, yes, the plural fish is fishes. <laughs> it's not fish, it's very confusing, it's fishes. 
Fishes love mayflies. They see that mayfly lure. Is it called a lure, Dana, or is it just a fly? It's just a fly. It's not even called a lure. See, I don't know anything about fly fishing, except for that apparently fish love mayflies. All right? And so I would really like to go fly fishing. I haven't ever been. It seems like it would be like pretty relaxing. You always see the guys that are on the covers of the magazines, like the wilderness magazine and their waders sitting out there throwing flies. And I'm sure it's hard. Like I'm sure there's a lot to the casting and I would probably be getting backlashed on the reel. I mean, I can hardly even use like a bait caster. Um, and yeah, so anyway, I would love to try that. The kind of fishing I do is usually behind my house. I have some kayaks and I go out in my kayaks and they fall off of the kayak dollies a couple times while I'm rolling them to the lake and then I get them to the lake and then maybe I fall into the water. Um, if Tommy's with me, we're trying to fish. My brother-in-law, he also might fall into the water. There might be snakes. There are lots of things. Um, so I, none of that is really the problem though, like my equipment, um, you know, my just joy of doing it. None of that is the problem with my fishing. The problem with my fishing is that I'm really bad at catching fish. I almost never catch anything that actually resembles a fish. Um, anything that's like a log, a tree, a branch, a stick, a twig, a bit of seaweed, whatever it is, I, I can catch that very well. I've caught all, all manner of vegetation. And so if anyone needs a lesson on that, I'm very good at it. So I actually want to show you guys how good I am at fishing. Um, I need a volunteer of sorts. I need someone. I don't want to pick you out. I need someone to volunteer. Russell has volunteered first. He's the first one I saw, at least. All right, Russell, you can make your way to the stage, please. And I am going to uh, get my fishing pole that's up here that I brought. It's very special. I'm going to climb over Dave. I'm what you call a trophy fish. <laughs> so as you can see here, sorry, I got a little in the mic there. I have uh, this awesome lure. It is a special rubber pterodactyl made specially for catching wild Russells. I was guaranteed by the people in the fishing department at Walmart that it would, in fact, catch Russell. Um, so Russell, today, unfortunately, because I don't catch fish, you are not a fish, so you do not need to use your mouth or any of that. You are, think like log body, tree branch arms, seaweed fingers, right? And I have no idea if I can cast well at all, but I need you to help me get hung up as fishermen say, okay? And I, I don't know how I'm gonna do this with the microphone, but we're gonna make it work. I can do it with one hand. See, look at that. So this is what happens when I fish. Okay. I toss this. Russell, you have to, yeah, you're going to need to catch it. You're going to need to, I'm going to need to get hung up. Oh, we're doing it. This is, see, this is a better example than I thought it would be. We're hung up. All right. So I'm going to take this with me now. What do you do when you get hung up? Well, you try to get it out, right? So you like, you do one of these, and if you're in the kayak like I am, then you like paddle over here, and you reel, and you reel, and you reel, and you get up here, and you jerk this thing, and you're like, maybe if I can get it from this side, and it's still stuck, and then you paddle, 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 paddle over here, and you, and like, it's not coming out. 
So like, if you're me, you really want this thing because you paid $14 for it at Walmart because it was like the guaranteed to catch the biggest bass in Lake Ray Hubbard. Yeah. And now you can't, and it's a problem. So this is what I do whenever I try to catch a fish is I get hung up, and then I'm upset, and I lose my rig. And, but the problem is that really that I just am too dependent on whatever's on the end of that line and the bit of line that I have attached here and not thinking about that I could just tie on something else and use the thousands of feet more fishing line that I have attached here. So this is what a good angler, I believe is the term they use for themselves, does if they get hung up, okay? They try to get it out for a little bit and then they're like, well, this is stupid. This thing's not that important. They cut bait, okay? So I will take this from you if I can. Thank you, Russell. You are a wonderful example. I'm just gonna put my fishing pole right here and uh, my computer will like me. We'll come back. So anyway, you cut bait, right? But it seems like that's how life works. Alright, so if that doesn't make sense, I want you to imagine with me that this is no longer a fishing line that I caught Russell with. I want you to imagine it as a timeline, okay? So I'm holding up, it's obviously clear, I don't know how much of you can see, I'm holding it up. Let's say this timeline here, this is your life, okay? And life is short, this is a short bit of line, whether you get, whether this is 85 years or it's 50 years or 10 years or two or a few days or whatever, it's short. So find yourself on the timeline. Where are you? Every inch is months, every millimeter is minutes that have passed. Precious moments in your life, okay? So I'm gonna go back to about right here. Well, that's probably too far, maybe here. Can you see the space between my fingers? It's small. This, this is where I was born, okay? And I'm not making a political statement, but for my purposes, I've grabbed it approximately nine months down the fishing line timeline that we have here. Consequently, uh, my mother, who's up there in the sound booth for me, uh, we're gonna get to those scriptures, I promise. <laughs> this is about halfway down her present timeline. So here I am, we move forward a few years, maybe we go forward five years, and I'm uh, walking into preschool, Little Red Schoolhouse for the first time. A few more years, now where am I? I'm in elementary school, and my brother and I are on the way to school, and I'm saying uh, one of the learned prayers that we would recite on the way to school every day. Zane, do you remember any of them? At least partially. You remember like the... Father, in the name of Jesus, you make your face to shine upon me. Yeah, you make your face to shine with joy on me. You are kind and protective of me. I am the head and not the tail. I am above and not beneath. I will try to live as Jesus taught, knowing that you will surround me with pleasure and favor. I will give love and favor to my friends, teachers, parents, and I will be a blessing to them. I thank you, Father, that like Jesus, I am growing strong in spirit, filled with wisdom 
in favor with God and man. Amen. It's a good prayer. I'm way too far. My hand slipped on my timeline. A few more years down the road, it's eighth grade. I'm standing in the middle of a football field. We just finished a game against Preston Wood. I have my helmet off, and I look in the stands, and I see my mom, and I just start bawling. I just finished a game. I'm like five foot three, 85 pounds soaking wet, not good at football, just only starting at cornerback because I go to a tiny private school. And I just finished a game against the number one team in the district with 10 solo tackles and two interceptions, one of which I almost took to the house for a touchdown. The quarterback chased me down at the last second. But I'm not crying because I'm excited. I'm crying because I stood there and told my mom in the kitchen that I was going to quit football and that God didn't care about me and whatever. And my mom put her faith in action on the line and told me God cares about you even in the little details and that where you're weak, he'll be strong. And sure enough, he was, even on the football field. Little moments that mark us. I'm 18. It's about right, maybe. Fishing line's slippery. I'm 18 years old. <coughs> I'm going to visit Texas Tech. Never been there before. Going to see if I'm going to go to college there. I get there. It rains mud. <laughs> You're asking yourself, how does it rain mud? I'm not even going to get into it. It rains mud. It rains mud. And I was like, I'm never coming back to this godforsaken town again. <laughs> Whoops. Ended up there for four years. So a couple years later, uh, I'm like sitting in my uh, little townhouse. It's a little like 500 square foot duplex with my dog, Jax. It's just me and him. And I've just had my heart broken for the first time. I found out that the girl that I've been dating for like a long time has been cheating on me. And I'm like, man, this really stinks. And... I'm just sulking. And then seconds later, God completely mends that with a gift, I'll call it, for creative writing that he drops on me in the moment. Some of you guys have heard some stuff that I've shared before, like spoken word stuff, and that was the beginning of it. It started something like, it's one of those days of the weeks of the months of the year where most of the day I'd rather not be here. One of those times in the morning waking up all alone when I'd give all I have for one ring on the phone. Just one more hour trapped inside my own skin when I can't believe she's not coming back again, but it's the minutes, not the hours, that hurt me the most. Watching the clock tick by, feeling more and more like a ghost. Every second that passes gets only a passing glance. Is this all I have left? No, there's no chance. Because now I remember I'm a son of the king, not by birth, but adopted under his wing. You see, once I was a slave to sin, a slave to my feelings, but I've made myself a slave to him, a slave to his healing. And I can't be knocked off the path, not by a girl or a test or anything in my tracks. And I could sit and wait, but today I'm deciding that I will not sit and brood on this and ignore my father's inviting because I can hear him call and I can feel him coming. He's coming after me and when he gets here I'll be running to meet him halfway or however far I make it so he can bind me up so I can let him take this. I've heard people say within the last day, don't be overcome or the devil gets his way, but I will be overcome again and again when the king shows up and knocks when I run to let him in because I don't think and act and live for any of this flesh. My spirit's pounding to get out saying, let me do the rest. So I'm letting him out now and I'll see how far he takes me. My flesh may be broken, but my spirit says you can't phase me. So bring it all on life. Throw it all my way. You can take it all now. You've got nothing left to take because in a weak man, there is strength beyond measure. A desperate man sold out to a king and all his treasure and he'll heap it on my head. I know the day is coming when I'll reap what I've sowed, when I'll make it worth my working. 
You get the idea. Keeps going. A couple years after that, I'm in college and God changes or prompts a professor, professor, I suppose I should say, to uh, change the grading scale in a class that I'm in that equivalates to uh, one point, one question on the final. That's how much I passed the class by to continue my degree plan and save myself $40,000 worth of scholarship money that it would have cost me. Crazy. And good thing I graduated on time because like shortly after that, in this building on the other side over there, a couple years later, I met Sarah, who's my wife. Like, man, God, you changing that maybe mattered more than I thought it did. I probably wouldn't have been here, you know? Then 2019 to 2020, it's like a year span. It's like this big, maybe, right? That was crazy. We uh, got engaged, bought our house with a down payment of the $40,000 that we saved in scholarship money for the test score that got changed. And then uh, we got married and we had Charlotte all within like the course of a, about a year. And it's pretty crazy because that little like blip of time right there on my long timeline, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Not like for all the rest of it combined. There are minutes, like seconds, even just moments in time that like seem to shape and define us, right? You've heard some of mine. So life is beautiful, but life is short. Um, some of us get longer than others. Some of us, like I said, maybe get 85 years and some of us get two years, but it's really all the same. Someone's like, no, it's not. Two years and 85 years, that's a huge difference. It's not, it's all the same. I'll prove it to you with math. Um, so I got the whiteboard out. Well, I'm going to get the whiteboard. I hauled it up here. Can you help me put it on the stage? And while we're getting this, I will say, um, first off, that this was not the course, for those of you who are wondering, yeah, you can grab it. this is not the course that God had to help me pass, all right? I passed this one mostly all on my own with limited help. And, uh, but I also have to say that I do not have my math minor. They said that I need to take linear algebra. Uh, in my senior year to get a math minor, and I did not want to take linear algebra. So someone out there be checking my work. I'm gonna get my daughter's uh, dry erase markers that I bought, because I don't trust these ones. I know hers are good, she uses them a lot. <coughs> and we are going to see the things on the other side, so I'll put it down here. We're gonna do a little math, all right? So we're gonna start by asking you all a question to see how much of scholars you are. So we have two years and 85 years, right? All right. So the first thing I'm gonna do, I'm gonna write two. Here, I talked about your marker, Charlotte. It's letting me down. I brought two. It's not very easy to read there. All right. So we got two divided by infinity equals. Anyone, math scholars, what is two divided by infinity? Answer is undefined. <laughs> undefined. And problems like this are why we have calculus. Okay? So calculus seeks to answer certain problems, one of which is like, what is 2 divided by infinity? 
So we're gonna make ourselves a really pretty graph here. I know you guys are upset. You weren't expecting to do math today. It's fine, we're here, buckle up. This is it. So this is our graph, right? This is our y-axis, we'll call it. Or in this case, for someone, I see you over there checking my work. You knew functionally where we were headed. We're gonna call it f of x, not y. And this is gonna be x, okay? So, f of x is going to be our function of x, all right? So, um, I hate to do this. Who thinks they're the oldest person in the room? <laughs> it might be you. Yeah. And you're, Dad, how old are you, 66? He's 66, all right. So we're gonna set an unknown, all good math starts with letters, right? We're gonna call it Z. And Z is going to equal 66 for Kevin. And then we will, who is either or thinks they're holding the youngest person in the room? Yep, I didn't know if you guys were gonna be here, but you are. So wait, Lenny is younger, right? And she is how old? She's yeah. So she's like we're gonna we're gonna give her a month, right? So that's like what like point someone tell me like point oh eight approximately, something like that in years. And that is Lenya. All right. So now what we're gonna do is we're gonna decide whose life is worth more, my dad or Lenya, and we're gonna do it using math. It's gonna be really great. It's gonna be easy. It's no problem, it's really easy. So we're gonna create our function here. Our function is going to be f of x, and f of x is what we're trying to solve for, and f of x is the value of your life, how important is your life. And we're gonna measure it as a function of time, okay? So we're gonna say f of x equals z divided by x, and that's gonna be our function, all right? So, how do we solve this? Well, right now we just have a bunch of variables, so we need to assign some things to our variables, and it might help if we graph it, right? So if f of x equals z over x, and we have uh, 66 as one z and 0.08 as one z, our 66 graph would look something approximately like this, and our 0.08 graph would look something approximately like this, all right? So we have two lines here. So we're going to say, like I said, that x is time. And if we would all like to live forever, then we're going to set x equal to infinity. infinity. Yes. So we will come here. We will set x equal to infinity. But we can't solve this, so again, with calculus, we're gonna turn this into a limit equation. So we're going to do the limit of f of x as x approaches infinity is really how you would do it. And it would be z over x, and then functionally, we would make limit of f of x equal to z over infinity. As this approaches infinity, we're going to replace this. So. Now you find out that the limit of f of x, uh, z, or if it's equal to z over infinity, if this number is 66 over infinity, well, let's look at the graph to try to decide where it is, right? So as x gets 
further this way as we get more time. We start coming down, the value of your life is decreasing, 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 and it starts to flatten, and it gets close to zero, right? So what we end up deciding about this is that as, so we're going to say as, and I'm going to sit down now because I'm getting too low, as x approaches infinity, f of x approaches zero. And shockingly enough, I'm not going to spend any more time writing it up here, if we do the same function for 0.08 over infinity, as x approaches infinity, f of x approaches zero. So what have we learned? <laughs> well, we learned something. We've learned that my dad, Kevin, and Linda's lives are equally worthless. <laughs> I I'm kidding, of course, and I don't think that we should claim to be able to like determine our value in life or to God using math, but um, where does our value come from? Okay, so we're going to get into the word now. We're going to start early. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis 1.1. And I'm going to find my place in my notes here, and then we will be good to go. So Genesis 1.1. Let's start in the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 3, God said, let there be light, and God saw that the light was good. And then in verse 6, he says, let there be a vault between the waters, and God called the vault sky. And then verse 9 God says, uh, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and God called the dry ground land and the water seas, and God saw that it was good. Then verse 11, he says, let the land produce vegetation, and in verse 12, God saw that it was good. So you know the story. We get the stars, the sun, the moon, we get the land creatures, we get birds, we get fish, fishes, fishes, <laughs> we get all that stuff. And God saw that it was Good. All right, good. Then in verse 26, God says, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the seas. Next, oh, sorry. And the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So God makes all these things, and he says that they're good, and good, and good, and good, and good, and then God makes mankind, and he says that it's very good. So we get a little bump right there, right? Then, if we visit chapter 2 of Genesis, um, we get even more context for the story. See, like, in chapter 1, we see God creating through his word, and we get some powerful imagery of like a God who even breathes stars or 
Um, you know, the God who, with his word, would create. Uh, I thought about while I was writing this, Tommy, the seven summits, right, that you'd want to climb. With, like, these seven mountains with a combined elevation with over 160,000 feet in elevation. And God could just speak that. That he would, like, fill the oceans. It's over 350 quadrillion gallons of water in the ocean. And he wow. would just create it with a whisper. So, like, we get it, he's big, he's powerful, right? But does that mean he cares about us? No. I mean, what's the biggest land mammal? African elephant, right? If you go out in the savannah right now and you go stand in front of one of them, you see just because they're big, go find out how much they care. You're probably going to get trampled, like, really quickly, and they're not going to think much about it, right? So God creates man, and chapter 2 says, The Lord God said, Let there be man, and the man Adam was formed. No, that's not what it says. It says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So with everything else, he speaks it. He speaks it into creation. But then with mankind, there's intimacy. He's close. There's an exchange, right? When it says back in chapter 1 that he created man in his image, this is how he did it. He gave of himself. He gave of his very breath to create mankind. That makes me feel pretty valued, but maybe it's not moving the needle for you. Um, if your name's not Adam, and we only have one Adam. <laughs> Hi, Adam. So Adam probably feels pretty validated right now. He's feeling valued by God. All this is good. The rest of you, maybe you're like, well, that's fine. It doesn't mean God loves me. And I, I kind of tongue-in-cheek there, but like, I feel like maybe God's stopping me and like, Maybe there are people in the room who are doing that. Like, if you're looking around at people around you and you're saying, oh, like, God can love them, but he doesn't love me. And, like, that's not what God says about you. He says that you're valued, that you're created in his image. John Wallace preached out of Ephesians 1 last week. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So it doesn't seem like the intimacy and the value and the care are limited to Adam and Eve. In Psalm 139, David gets a revelation of this value that God places on him. He pins it something like this. You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know, when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out in my lying down, and you are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind me and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. For the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Amen. So God's pursuing David, and David recognizes it. 
And some of you may or may not recognize it, but like God is pursuing you and he's been pursuing you since the beginning, not since your beginning, but since the beginning, right? We go back, I didn't even have the text pulled up today, I didn't put it in here, but there's the scripture about the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth, right? That even that sacrifice was determined, that it was all set before he even created the first man that he knew what the cost would be. That's your value. If you go back to uh, verse 7, will you put it back up there? Of that last scripture, uh, Psalm. Here we go. This is a cool one to me. This is like hundreds of years before Pentecost, right? Like the Spirit hasn't been poured out on all flesh, on mankind. And David says, where can I go from your Spirit? Where can I run from your presence? Pretty crazy, I love that. So, here's a fun fact. I'll take a break from the scripture. Um, if any of you ever had a baby, which many of you have, some recently, um, you may or may not know that whenever a doctor starts counting weeks, Danny, if I'm wrong, do not come at me, all right? That's <laughs> what Google said. <laughs> Danny's a doctor. When they start counting how many weeks you are pregnant, you're not really like, pregnant for the first couple weeks. I didn't know that. I mean, it makes sense when I think about it, but they're, they're actually measuring your pregnancy from your last you know, ovulation date, and so a child isn't generally uh, fertilized, the egg isn't fertilized until a couple weeks into the pregnancy. So I want to take a minute to, to look at and talk about what it means to be fearfully and wonderfully made, as David put it. So like I said, week two to three, somewhere in there, we have conception. Week five, just a few weeks after conception, a baby's heart and circulatory system form, and sometime between weeks five and six, the cells start pulsing, the heartbeat. Week seven, a baby's head develops. Week eight, nose. Week nine, toes. Week 10, elbows. Week 11, genitals. Week 12, fingernails. Week 14, the baby's gender becomes apparent. Week 16, eyes start moving. Week 18, a baby can hear. Week 21, thumb sucking. Week 23, fingerprints. Week 25, the baby responds to the parents' voices. Week 26, lungs. Week 28, the eyes open. Week 32, the baby practices breathing. Week 33, the baby detects light. And then the baby basically spends approximately seven weeks growing and getting into position to be birthed. <laughs> so oddly enough, uh, 40 weeks ago from today, was September the 11th, 2022. Special date in our country. I have nothing to address there. I just thought it was interesting. Um, but maybe it's a good marker for you. Maybe you, you know, you're more likely to remember that date than another one. So I would like to ask you, what have you done in the last 40 weeks? Probably not that much. I mean, maybe you changed jobs. I changed jobs. Maybe you had a child. Like, maybe your life changed a lot. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that you probably didn't do as much as the baby here, right? It's quite a crazy thing. So I want you to imagine how the world would work if a baby spent 40 weeks uh, just trying to get comfortable in the womb and to be comfortable living in that world instead of getting ready to become part of this world. It would not work. The earth is pregnant with eternity and we are the offspring. say it again because it's kind of a thinker, but the earth is pregnant with eternity 
And we are the offspring. So when does life begin? It's an age-old question. It's like come up more and more in the last 50 years, even in like religious and political debate, like particularly around like the topic of abortion and whatever, right? It's like, does life begin at conception or when you have a heartbeat or when you have the potential to survive on your own outside the womb or uh, at birth even? I don't know. How about eternal life? When does eternal life begin? If I can pick my pterodactyl, my fishing line back up here. Let's think about this, right? You have your whole timeline. We said this was your 85 years, right? However far I can stretch my arms out. Maybe this was your 85 years, if that's what you get. Maybe you get all those. So when does eternity begin? Does it begin over here, when you're conceived? Does eternal life begin when you die? What do we think? Are we born eternal? If you've studied a little theology or you've hung out around here a little too much, um, maybe late after church on a Sunday or whatever it was, you might be familiar with uh, several different ideas of views of eternity within the Christian faith. Among those are like traditionalism or conditionalism and then some more modern views of like heaven and hell with eternal conscious torment, uh, universal reconciliation, etc. And uh, while your opinion of that may frame how you think about like what I'm going to get into here, uh, I I'm not going to get into that today. Jordan just <laughs> breathed a sigh of relief on the front row. He's like, praise God, he's not preaching about that. Already 30 minutes in. So uh, no matter which one of those like views of eternity you subscribe to, I think Christians, everyone I've met, all agree that um, Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life. It's maybe the most fundamental doc like doctrine of the Christian faith. Look at, uh, what's the scripture everyone puts on their eye black, right? Tim Tebow, when it got Googled like a bajillion times during the national championship. John 3.16, right? What's it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 10, starting in verse 27, says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. In 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of good, God, overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. 
Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony, and whoever does not believe that God has, uh, whoever does not believe that, or believe God has made him out to be a liar, because they have not believed the testimony God has given about His Son. And this is the testimony: God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we will have what we asked of him. So eternal life, only found in Jesus. There are more scriptures. That was as long as I felt like I could read to you without you checking out. And it was probably too many anyway. But you can go and go and go. So if this is the case, what's it mean for us, right? I'm going to get my fishing line again. So, again, this is your life. The metaphor has been drilled through you, right? So, what about the rest of the line that we talked about over there, right? What about a good fisherman? What do they think about? They don't get so attached to that bit that's there. And one of the crazy things about fishing line, if I can get it unstuck, not ideal. There we go. Is that fishing line just goes like on a reel forever. Like so long. I can just do this and do this and do this. And if that was 85 years and this is just hundreds of years, and this is more cleanup for later, and I'm just spooling thousands, thousands of years, right? Thousands of years. You all see where I'm going. I'm trying to get you to eternity, right? And eventually, if I keep spooling that, right, if I keep going with this line of 85 years, 85 years, 85 years, right, like, it can just go forever, and eventually, like, that reel, if I kept doing it for long enough, would run out of line. And that, obviously, would be where the metaphor breaks down. But, that's not what we're talking about, right? The metaphor is just something to help you understand. The idea is that um, if we just kept going on and on and on and on, we could just go forever, right? Some of us, though, we're like so focused on the few feet of line that are attached to our little pterodactyl there. <laughs> right? Like we're so focused on what's hanging off the end of our pole. And we don't know, like we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We could be the, God forbid, the next victim of a church shooting. Like we don't even have a lock on the door. Someone could come flying in there right now like or it couldn't be all of us like maybe it's you you could get sick something really terrible could happen like you could die before tomorrow gets here if I can go back and point you to the graph over there interestingly you see that if this these functions represent the importance of our life that if you look at them over a short period of time right if this is infinity maybe this is one year your life is super important. It's like really, really, really important. It's way up here. Actually, if we were to reverse this function and we were to have x approach zero, so as time gets smaller and smaller and approaches like a moment in time, right? Then the limit of f of x would actually approach infinity. So in theory, over the shortest period of time that you can imagine by worldly standards, your life is infinitely 
important. It's the only thing that matters, right? It's really crazy, like, it sounds silly to talk about, like, standing in the church, but that's what we do. Like, how often do we live for, like, your next moment or, like, your next meal or, like, just comfort in the present moment of, like, what you're going to do when you leave the building today or, like, who's blowing up your phone or what's important with work or, like, if you're going to have a job or if you have enough money or if your kids are behaving right or if your friends like you or if God loves you or if you've been, you know, following the rules of Christianity to amend your life the best way, you know, like, we do it all the time. The Bible says in Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So I've heard this text preached a bunch of times, and I'm far from a theologian, not a scholar. Uh, but I think it's like one of them that I've heard taken out of context the most, because it gets heard it preached and like taught so often as like a carpe diem thing, you know, like seize the day, like let's live for today, live in the moment, you know, tomorrow will take care of itself, God's got you. Uh, I think this is really missing the whole point of what Matthew's getting at in the scripture though. He's telling you not to focus on today, he's telling you to focus uh, on more than what's in front of you. If you don't believe me, like we don't have to go back very far. It's right there in the scripture. Go back a few verses. Matthew 6, 19 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. This is like five verses before. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So this whole chapter is really actually like the complete opposite of living in the moment. <laughs> it's really saying like, don't get like so attached to the few feet of fishing line, right? I, I mean, I've killed the metaphor at this point, but it's like, don't key on, in on that one little snippet of the timeline. It just matters so little in the context of eternity. It's really hard though, I'll be the first to admit it. Um, we find ourselves in a weird spot on history's timeline in the grand scheme of things. A lot of theologians like to refer to it as the already but not yet. You might think, like, what's that mean? Well, in short, it means that the promise has been fulfilled, but it hasn't been fully realized yet. So we began in Christ simply, maybe like a fertilized egg, right? 
like a child, maybe week 25 of pregnancy, at some point we begin to respond to our father's voice. And then like the fetus in the early 30s weeks, we begin to come into an awareness of the light. And this prepares us to step into that light, to walk in it. But we're not in the garden. But we're also not waiting for our coming Messiah, right? And we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, but we're also not all in heaven gathered in the throne room singing, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is filled with the splendor, right? Like, with all the angels, we're not there. So there's Ephesians 1 again. Again, John preached about last week. If you weren't here last week, you could have skipped this week. Verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in, according, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. You were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So eternal life is found in Jesus and the Holy Spirit or the spirit of Jesus as Paul refers to it sometimes is our guarantee, right? Some translations put it that he's our down payment. So the Holy Spirit's both proof that you belong to the family and he's also like if I can stretch the metaphor so far, the appetizer, like before the uh, supper of the lamb, you know, he's like, not to minimize, but he's like my daughter's strawberries in the car on the way to breakfast, right? <laughs> so how do we walk in eternal life? We walk in the spirit, right? And when does eternal life begin? Well, it begins when your current life ends. Someone, feeling like a smart person right now, they're like, you asked that question earlier, when does eternal life begin? And I said, when you die. And you're right, but I want to give some context to that, okay? Because we're all going to die twice. We all know that our bodies don't last forever. At some point, we die. And then for some, we die again, a second death. For they, I won't say we, I'm not, I'm not claiming that, right? Revelation 21.8 says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice the magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So what about the rest of us? I said we are all going to die twice. What's our second death, right? The real question, yeah, if you're a quick Christian, isn't what your second death is. It's what your first one is. Galatians 2.20 it says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. 
Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Mark 8, 35. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And then it's basically all of Romans chapter 6. We could do this literally like all day. We're all going to die twice. The first one can be on your terms if you want. And I mean, for many of us, you know, we're probably already past that point. But when you die to Christ, you're made alive uh, by the Spirit and you're given eternal life. Born again, as Jesus puts it in John chapter 3, right? But if we spend like our entire lives living for comfort and the pleasures of today, then we would be like a fetus that never goes through all the change and development that it has to go through before being born and you never get born again, right? And like pregnancy is great, but like pregnancy is not the end goal. I don't know anyone who's been pregnant that wants to be pregnant forever. Like you can be pregnant and be pregnant and be pregnant. And at some point, like when you get toward the end of it, I know Brittany with those twins was like, get them out of here. Like I want them gone. Eviction notice has been served. Get out of my belly, right? Because the goal isn't pregnancy. The goal is new life. So I gave a bunch of different analogies because I think it's really important we get this. And frankly, like if I give you more than one, it's more likely for like everyone to grab onto one of them maybe. So let's come back to the beginning and let's go back to the Mayfly. What's the point of the Mayfly, right? Other than that it was a good segue from June bugs to the fishing <laughs> line analogy, right? Well, I would contend that you should have about as much concern for your own life, this one, the one that you live here, as you do for a mayfly. That when you see one and you just swat it or <laughs> you kick it, I mean, I'm doing anything I can. If I'm getting wild, right? But there's no concern for a mayfly's life, right? Even from children, even from PETA, even from God. I'm standing by that one. I realize it's like an oversimplification. God doesn't dismiss our problems or lack care for us, even in like in our time here on earth, but if we're so reluctant to lay our lives down that we will never give of ourselves, then how can we be born again? After all, you know, Mayfly may only live for, what did I write, 24 hours, five minutes if you're a female, sorry. But your 85 years that we keep pulling up on the fishing line, Assuming you're healthy and like everything goes about exactly as you hope. Maybe you want to live longer. Maybe you want to be 90-something. I'm not sure if I want to get that old. It still goes to zero. If we're living life for what's in front of us, then we're like missing the whole message of the gospel. Paul demonstrates really well what it means to lay your life down. He writes to the church of Philippi after he's been in prison for preaching the gospel. I think actually from prison, honestly. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And then again to the church of Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 24, Paul says, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. 
My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So while I do believe that we're like loved and valued by God, I think that there is a call this morning to treat ourselves a, a bit like a mayfly. As Revelation 12 puts it, to love not our lives even unto death. This is good news, though. I know it sounds like gloom and doom. Everyone's like, I have to die to myself. But, like, this is the gospel, right? It's not, a, it's not a lesser calling to not live under the law and to not live under sin and to live in the spirit and to live in life. It's, it's a greater calling, right? Because it calls us not to, like, read the Bible and, like, try to make ourselves a little bit better, but it calls us to give everything, to give all of ourselves. But really, our faith should grow in this context. Like, it's really good soil for our faith to sprout and to blossom because it directs our mind to the things that are not of the earth, which is the playground for faith, frankly. Like, that has to be the beginning of all faiths. Is faith is like, that's the baseline assumption is that there's something that's, that's bigger than us, right? Like, even if you're someone who doesn't subscribe to Christianity, the basis for any kind of faith, the baseline has to be that there's something that's bigger than us. It's completely counter to the culture that encourages us to live in the moment, right? To carpe diem, to put our like needs at the forefront and uh, focus on our daily activities and just get through each day, right? Just get to tomorrow and just getting by. And that's, that's why we don't worry about tomorrow, just like the scripture said, right? Not so that we can focus on the present because we know the story. We know that it's written and our hope for the future supersedes what happens tomorrow or next week or next year or if we don't make it that far. And this is good news for all who believe. It's good news for everybody. It's good news for the sick, for the healthy, for the young, the old, those in the prime of life, those on their deathbed. There's eternal life in Jesus and eternity begins when you decide to kill the desires for a pleasurable, successful, or long life and you're born again into a life of the Spirit calls us to give away our life for the sake of the gospel. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The beauty of the gospel is that uh, not only did Jesus pay the highest price, but God also set the price, right? He likes to say there was no cosmic negotiator up there working out the deal, saying this is how much it costs to redeem humanity, right? He could have, could have done it another way. But by setting and paying the highest price, your imputed value just absolutely skyrockets. He tells you that you're worth everything. One of my favorite quotes from a guy I used to listen to a lot named Dan Moeller, he says, why do we sell out cheap when we've been bought at such a high price? Romans 6 that I talked about earlier puts it this way. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, 
that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer up every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin. You've become slaves to righteousness. I'm using this as an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now... Offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's it. I have no altar call. I won't have anyone raise their hands or run to the front. Despite that, there is a call for sure. And it's not for me. And it's not a call to live a better life. You're not a governing body. You're not created for incremental reform. Right? The call is to lay your life down, to, to cut bait. We have to be born again, not gradually improved. Paul says we must no longer conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. He says he wakes up every morning and crucifies his flesh daily, right? So I, w I wish I had something more concrete to give you, like that I could tell you that I've walked to the end of this road, or that I've like dived headfirst into these waters, but like I've put my toe in, and like maybe at times I've waded waist deep. Um, but I'm not under the impression that I have given everything. But I know that that is the call. The call is to give everything. And uh, we're more likely to finish that journey together. And I know that there are people here that are on it. Zane talked about it this morning. On the journey that, that God has them on. So anyway, I appreciate everybody listening. I'll hand it back over to Jordan. Uh, and yeah, be born to eternal life. I think this is directly connected to why 
so many of us, how many of you would raise your hand and say you battled disappointment or hopelessness at some point? Um, I, I feel like I'm supposed to pray over you to have a release from disappointment, but you will enter straight into another disappointment if you gain a temporal hope. The ultimate thing that will rob your hope is having a lesser hope that will end. No other hope in this life will sustain. The only thing I have found that sustains life in me is giving up on clinging to everything in this life. Yep. And so I don't care like what, what your hope has been for a better life or a perfect life or the perfect marriage or the perfect business or the perfect whatever. As long as you cling to those things as your hope, even the perfect religion, even the perfect faith, like if, as long as you cling to those things of your hope, these imaginations of what your future will be, you will end up feeling disappointed at some point because it will disappoint you. Yeah. And so I just want to pray. I want us to all just stand real quick. I'm going to pray over you. Uh, God, I pray for every person in this place that you would allow us to cling to the one and only hope, which is in Jesus, letting go of every vain hope and imagination that this life offers. God, I pray that you would remove us from the mindset of seize the day, and you would take us into the mindset of seizing and apprehending the death that's been brought in Jesus into our lives. And so, God, I pray that everybody who's clinging, grabbing, climbing, trying to figure out what the meaning, purpose, calling of this life is, I pray that they would let go and find themselves falling into an ocean of your love. And so right now, God, I pray that, you, I pray that there would be just a breaking off of a climbing and a trying to be a better person, and it would be an entering into the born-again life that's found only in your love, God. There is by no effort a work of my own, but by your work and by revelation of your love that I'm transformed. So Lord, I just pray that right now, that you would release us from the clinging of all other hopes and we would find the one sure hope which is in your life. In Jesus' name, and bless every person in this place. Amen. I love you guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode from Clearpath Church in Dallas, Texas. If you'd like more info to visit us on a Sunday morning or to subscribe to our newsletter, check us out at www.clearpathdallas.com. Follow us on Instagram at Clearpath Dallas. Thanks for listening.